Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The government has said it's willing to break international law. Its most senior lawyer has quit. Its latest piece of Brexit legislation brings some real strains to the very existence of the United Kingdom. Here to cut through the noise, and there really has been a lot of it, is a podcast lineup which hasn't known a week like this since, well, uh, the last one. Alex Thomas, who heads our civil service work, is joining us. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. Our associate fellow, Raphael Hogarth. Hi, Raphael. Hello. And senior researcher, Maddie Timont-Jack, who leads our Brexit work. Hi, Maddie. Hello, Bronwyn. Well, joining me to discuss what the government's up to and where all this goes next. And as if the government didn't have enough to be getting on with, the threat of climate change is not going away. Ministers have set themselves a very ambitious net zero carbon target. But a new report we've put out this week says reaching it is a harder challenge than getting Brexit done or tackling the COVID-19 crisis. And we warn that the government is way off course. We're going to speak to one of the authors about what the government needs to do now to get back on track. So let's start today's podcast with a name that even our erudite listeners might not have been concentrating on at the beginning of the week, Jonathan Jones. He's the Permanent Secretary at the Government Legal Department, for now at least. On Tuesday, he became the eighth Permanent Secretary this year to announce a departure from the government. Alex, tell us what his job was. So he is the uh, Treasury Solicitor and Head of the Government uh, Legal Department. So that means that he's got a whole variety of functions, but uh, sort of chief among those are to uh, be the boss of all of the government lawyers who are advising uh, different government departments and also the uh, sort of ultimate advisor to uh, the government on what is and uh, isn't uh, in line with the uh, law. So um, he will have particular relationships with the Attorney General and the law officers, as they're called, the other um, senior uh, sort of political appointment lawyers in, in government, and also with the uh, the, the Lord Chancellor. Um, I mean, also in practice, uh, he is the man who the Cabinet Secretary and the Prime Minister call when there is just a really tricky, difficult legal problem. Um, so uh, he's often in the room when uh, the big decisions are being taken, and he's there to advise uh, on uh, uh, on what is and isn't possible um, uh, in, in, under the law. Brilliant. Um, thanks very much. So, Ralph, why has he chosen to leave the room where it happens? Well, he hasn't actually said in public why he has gone, uh, but what has been reported is that his departure followed a dispute with Number 10, basically about provisions of the Internal Market Bill brought forward this week which break international law by seeking to uh, override the UK's obligations under the withdrawal agreement. And I mean, he has a a duty under the civil service code, like all civil servants, to uphold the law. Uh, But more than that, he's subject to limits as a lawyer under the barrister's code of conduct, among other things, on what he can do for a client. And his overriding duty, uh, which he owes not to government, but to the court, is to... Uh, in the lingo of the Code of Conduct, act with independence in the interests of justice. So it, it looks like on this occasion, uh, with, with the government seeking to legislate in a way that it, it openly admits is unlawful in international law, he might have felt that he uh, reached those limits and, and either as a matter of principle or ethically under his professional duties that he had to go. Okay, so we're speculating at this point, as, as you say, but that, that sounds um, entirely plausible is what people have said. You, you were talking to him at the IFG at a public discussion earlier this year, and what might have seemed, uh, I'm, I'm no discredit here, it might have seemed quite a technical discussion then about the law has become essential viewing now. It's on our website. Let's hear a short clip from it. Well, fundamentally, international law is the law, 
it derives from obligations that either the government has, or a government has deliberately entered into through treaty, or otherwise arise under international law. Uh, and we treat that as the law, and the government is subject to the rule of law and will we'll comply with those obligations. So the role of the lawyer, so mutatis mutandis, or Latin may be banned. Anyway, the role of the lawyer, <laughs> so far as it uh, arises under international law, will be just the same. It will be to give the best professional advice as to what the law means, how it applies in a particular factual situation, and therefore what is the risk that a given course of con- conduct may be incompatible with that law. So, Rafa, what did he say then that stands out now? Well, I, I think you know, that clip is so interesting because it points to this sort of almost philosophical struggle uh, about what it means for the UK government to say that it's committed to the rule of law. International law uh, is not automatically enforceable before the British courts. And and there's sort of growing group of people, uh, particularly some people in the Conservative Party who are interested in uh, sort of reform of the government's relationship with the courts, who take the view that fundamentally whether to comply with international law is a political decision for ministers. So that means you know, when the ministerial code says ministers must uphold the law, it's not talking about international law. When the civil ser- service code says civil servants have to, it's not talking about international law. And you know, when government lawyers are considering whether to advise ministers they can't do something because it's unambiguously unlawful, that's not a piece of advice that's open to them if they're talking about international law. So they make the argument, look, these are international conventions uh, which we have signed up to, uh, but it's a different thing from domestic law. Exactly, exactly, because because it doesn't automatically become part of our domestic law uh, when we uh, sign those treaties. Uh, but the you know the other view, and and for me the view that is a lot more persuasive is that international law is law, and that means that upholding the law means upholding international law. And that's you know, that's the view that British governments have sort of traditionally taken. That's the view they've taken and espoused on the world stage for a very long time. And you know, what I think emerges very strongly from uh, what Sir Jonathan said at, at the IFG when he spoke here uh, was that that's the view that he took as well. And it, it, it looks this week, like we may be moving to quite a new understanding in British government of what the rule of law is for us. And, and, and the government's line has been, look, uh, yes, we, uh, this, we may uh, end up uh, breaking uh, international law, but this is not a big deal. And you're, you're putting forward the counter argument that this is indeed a big deal. Yes, indeed. I, I think it is a big deal. I mean, you know, the, the government says, look, it's a very specific and limited breach of international law. And in a sense, that's Right. You know, it, it, what the government has done, as I'm sure we'll talk about later, is sort of take powers in this legislation to uh, a- allow ministers to uh, implement measures that diverge from the withdrawal agreement. Um, but they've not actually used those powers. They just want to take the powers. Uh, so, so the government says, oh, that's very specific. It's very limited. Uh, but the, the problem is uh, that the nature of the law is that you don't get to choose when to follow it because it's the law. And that's something that... Um, the UK has for a long time said to its international partners, particularly international partners that often do break international law, like China, like Iran, like Russia. You know, this is the basis on which the UK goes out in, in on the world stage and in the UN and condemns the use of chemical weapons. It, it, it's also the basis on which uh, the UK claims sovereignty over various territories and says that other countries can't just sort of wade into Gibraltar or the Falklands or whatever it might be. So even if it's a sort of specific and limited breach, as the government puts it. Once you concede the principle that a country can decide 
when it respects its international obligations and when it doesn't, you concede quite a lot in terms of uh, soft power and respect for the rule of law. So, Maddie, take us into some of the detail. What are the circumstances in which the government might be breaking international law? So the powers that the government has taken within the internal market bill relating to the Northern Ireland Protocol is basically what what they're saying is that if um, decisions are not made at the Joint Committee about the functioning of specific aspects of the Northern Ireland Protocol, particularly, for example, around whether or not exit summary declarations will be needed for goods moving from Northern Ireland into Great Britain, they're saying that they will have the powers to make that decision unilaterally. So they'll. So as I said, at the moment, there are discussions ongoing with the Joint Committee overseeing the withdrawal agreement about the application of the protocol. But they're saying if those decisions aren't made, then they'll be able to, to make that decision unilaterally. I mean, the other big well, area... This is the Joint Committee with, with the EU that is supposed to you know, thrash out these things. Yeah, exactly. So it's the Joint Committee... Unilaterally, yeah. Yeah, so so the Joint Committee overseeing the application of the withdrawal agreement, those those meetings have sort of been ongoing to try and thrash out some of the details of the application of the Northern Ireland Protocol. The other area as well um, is sort of potentially more contentious, relates to state aid. So within the Northern Ireland Protocol that the UK government signed up to last year, um, basically it said that they would have to notify the European Commission about um, any sort of decisions around state aid that might apply to Northern Ireland. Ireland, but also possibly relating to any um, any decisions that might apply to businesses that operate both across Great Britain and Northern Ireland, because that might relate to trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And basically, the UK government has said that they will they or they want to take powers that will allow them to make decisions about state aid without having to notify the European Commission. So again, that would undermine the commitments that they have signed up to in the withdrawal agreement last year. Okay, and I want to come back to some of those points. But Alex, why have they done this? Theories abound. There are any number of uh, uh, possible explanations, some of them that are sort of rational and logical and some of them uh, that are the kind of, uh, you know, Mad Max um, chaos and disruption. Uh, I think fundamentally there are sort of two readings of this and I think both of them can be true. The first is that the government needs to shore up and prove their credentials to conservative Brexiter backbenchers, potentially in advance of um, a, uh, a, a concession or, or, or a deal being done. So there's a sort of political handling question there. The second um, is that they uh, genuinely think that it gives them uh, sort of uh, strength uh, in the um, negotiations. Uh, I think in the in the short term, that's clearly not true. Um, but there is an argument there that they could. The nature of the outrage sort of can obscure some of the uh, some of the uh, sort of uh, controversies. And actually, technically, on the substance, uh, whether it's on state aid or fisheries or some of the other things, there's the government isn't isn't so uh, far apart from. Uh, from the EU negotiators. Um, so it, it, it is quite hard to understand what's going on and uh, it is not entirely sort of logical. But my best guess is there's a sort of combination of those two factors at, at play and they think, well, we're either going to get a deal, in which case we need to shore up our political position with the uh, parts of the Conservative Party, or we're um, uh, uh, not going to get a deal, uh, in, in which case we're preparing the ground for, um, for, for, for not having one and sort of giving ourselves the best shot by throwing, throwing everything in the air at the moment. 
And just on your first point about backbenchers and so on, this is not a government that's fallen over itself to uh, look after backbenchers and their their feelings. Uh, Does the government need to worry about numbers on this? Uh, I think it's too soon to tell. Um, I think if I were in the government, I would be far more uh, interested in what's happening in the House of Lords than in the House of Commons. Um, So uh, we've we've heard already there are Theresa May, Bob Neill, other um, uh, senior Tory backbenchers have um, expressed uh, concerns about this. That may or may not get to the magic uh, 40 uh, number that would uh, uh, precipitate a government defeat in the House of Commons. My hunch, but we'll see, is that is that um, the rebels won't have the numbers on this and there won't be enough uh, people willing to stick their heads uh, above the Brexit parapet to, to, to cause um, uh, defeat in the Commons. Um, the House of Lords, I, I I cannot see any way that this gets through the House of Lords in its current form. Uh, and of course, the House of Lords can delay uh, for um, a parliamentary session, uh, which uh, would uh, stymie the government's plans on this, um, which all sort of lends credibility that there's, there's as much thinking about the story and the narrative and the media uh, around this as there is about the substance of the legislation. That's really interesting. That's very well put. Raf, what does this mean for the Attorney General and the other ministers who are law officers? I think the law officers are now in an extraordinarily difficult position. I think the question everybody's going to be asking is if Sir Jonathan, the, you know, the government's top legal official, couldn't tolerate what was in the internal market bill, then why can they tolerate what's in it? And, and I mean, Lord Keane um, who's the Advocate General for Scotland, so the government's um, senior ministerial advisor on Scots law, was asked this question in the House of Lords yesterday. He was pretty much asked, how can you possibly stay in your position? And the answer he gave was that it'll ultimately be for Parliament to decide whether to accept what the government has proposed in this bill. And, and so essentially, the argument there seems to me to be, well, we don't really reckon this is going to get through Parliament anyway. Um, so we might as well stay put and see whether it does. The difficulty with that, of course, um, is that ultimately the law officers are going to have to walk through the division lobbies and vote for a breach of international law. And I think that's that's something quite extraordinary and something you'd expect to be quite difficult for them to do. And just to uh, add to that, I mean, Bronwyn, you asked earlier how big Jonathan Jones's resignation is. And there's also a sense that in another week, another permanent secretary uh, resigns. Here we are again, uh, commenting on the latest uh, shower of hard rain. This does seem to me, for the reasons uh, Raphael was saying, uh, and others, to be sort of qualitatively different from the other resignations and sackings we've seen from the civil service. I think, firstly, because of all the wider ramifications that we've been uh, talking about um, uh, uh, in terms of the UK's reputation and uh, and and uh, negotiations with the EU, but also the position of the Treasury Solicitor and of the law officers is a pretty fundamental part of the constitutional makeup of, of the UK. It is a protection against governments breaking the law. And certainly in uh, cases I've been involved in, I've been tweeting about prison voting a little bit, it was precisely the existence and the threat of resignation of the Treasury Solicitor and the views of the law officers that kept the government um, within the bounds of international law. So if that convention has gone, and we've had the guidance from the Cabinet Secretary saying that civil servants can work on all of this stuff, that's a, that is a, that is a, a, a big change. And secondly, 
what do other civil servants do now? Um, uh, if Jonathan Jones has resigned uh, because of the reasons we think he has, uh, who replaces him? What does the government legal department do? What does the wider civil service do? Um, these are um, really, really difficult, agonisingly difficult decisions for some civil servants who will feel this kind of very keenly and very profoundly. If I can just very quickly add that there's, there's one there's one other person that we haven't talked about, which is the Lord Chancellor, um, who I also think will hopefully be scratching his head over what to do right now, um, because the Lord Chancellor uh, has an extra duty, a statutory duty imposed by the Constitutional Reform Act 2005, which he swore a public oath on entering office to comply with, to respect the rule of law. Uh, and you know, sort of traditionally, before the reforms that were introduced under New Labour, the uh, Lord Chancellor would have been a sort of senior and well-respected lawyer. Now, obviously, the, the Lord Chancellor is a politician, a Secretary of State, and, and in some senses, like any other uh, cabinet minister. But he, he does have that extra duty. Uh, and I, I think there are sort of difficult questions for him to consider over how he can respect that duty or comply with that duty to respect the rule of law while supporting uh, a piece of legislation that breaks the law. Okay. Well, we've taken that for the moment, as far as we can, about the difficult position these people are in and, and the constitutional ramifications of the UK saying that it's prepared to break international law. I want to move now to our second uh, subject, which is to dig into this bill just a bit more detail and look at why it's so controversial for the UK itself internally. And Maddie, I wonder if you could take us into that. Your, your brilliant and tireless team has produced a masterly explainer of this bill. Just take us into a bit why it's controversial with, uh, with Northern Ireland and Scotland and Wales. Yeah, so before um, before the announcement that the government was including those specific provisions relating to Northern Ireland, we were already anticipating quite a lot of controversy around the bill because the government's introducing it to regulate what it calls the UK internal market, so trade within the UK, so between Scotland, England, Wales, and to a certain extent Northern Ireland, although the provisions around the Northern Ireland Protocol may, means that regardless of those other um, extra clauses included, it, what it means in Northern Ireland is slightly different. Um, but essentially, the purpose of it is to say that they're using, they're introducing clauses around mutual recognition and non-discrimination of goods and services, which will mean that any good or service that can be sold in one market, so either England, Scotland, or Wales, um, and as I say, for some for some areas, Northern Ireland as well, will be able to be sold in the rest of the UK, regardless of whether or not the, the sort of regulations and, and standards governing those services and goods differ. So it's really just saying that anything, anything sold in one part of the UK will be sold in the other, and and the other sort of aspect of this, this non-discrimination clauses, will basically say that that Scotland, Wales, England, or Northern Ireland couldn't explicitly legislate to prevent the sale of a good um, from another part of the UK. So, for example, if we take that classic chlorinated chicken in this um, long-for trade deal with the US, if if the UK government did sign up to a trade deal that allowed the sale of chlorinated chicken within the UK. The Scottish government, the Welsh government couldn't legislate to say, actually, no, we're not having chlorinated chicken in our markets. Um, and it's it's quite controversial because 
although it is sort of accepted between um, the governments that actually there is such thing as a UK internal market and actually leaving the EU um, could introduce new barriers to trade within the UK, um, it's quite controversial because the, the sort of provisions are very sweeping. So it will cover sort of so many different um, goods and services. And although there are some exceptions at the back of the bill, so for example, for animal, plant or food safety, that you could prevent the sale of one good in another part of the UK. Um, they're pretty limited compared to, for example, similar sort of exceptions within the EU single market. Um, so I think the, the big issue really is that the, Sc the Scots and the Welsh in particular, um, see this as undermining their powers to regulate in devolved areas, although the UK government is right that it doesn't explicitly prevent that. It's just that the reality of how, how the market then would operate under under this bill could, could have that impact sort of implicitly. So that's a really interesting and, and subtle point. I mean, let's just pick that up for a second. To what extent could you take the other side from the Scottish and Welsh government and say the UK needs an internal market to work well? Uh, it needs an internal market when it, when it leaves um, the U EU uh, in its entirety. And um, the government is justified. It might be tactless. It might be aggravating uh, of the devolved uh, sort of feelings in, in the way it's gone about it. But it's justified in what it's trying to do. What would you think about I mean, I, I would agree that I think there is a real concern that, you know, the EU single market has been the framework in which devolution happened. There are certain policy areas that were devolved, but that were actually pretty much regulated at the EU level, which meant that new barriers to trade weren't introduced within the UK. So I think that this is an absolutely valid concern for the UK government. But it's worth saying that actually this there has been a process ongoing for the last three years working between the UK government and the devolved administrations about how to manage this. So this is something that we're calling common frameworks it's, it's sort of government speak that we've all seemed to have adopted which essentially they identified all the areas of eu law that intersected with devolved policy areas they identified where the biggest risks were where new legislation might be needed to actually set common standards across the uk so rather than saying you can just let anything in if it's if it's if it's acceptable in england it's acceptable in scotland what they were working to do was say well what how do we actually want to regulate that are there minimum or maximum standards that we want to have in place in some of these key policy areas and although work on common frameworks it's, it's fair to say has been quite slow um partly because of just the capacity within the, the devolved administration Last year, they were focusing on preparing for no deal. This year, they were focusing on preparing for COVID. But I think that the, the, the reason that maybe the way the government has approached this is quite tactless is that I don't think there has been sort of sufficient discussion about what addition the internal market bill in its current form would add. No, I understand that the tactless point and the point that you were making last night in the office, actually in our office, which was great. Um, was that uh, you felt the government had gone further than it needed in this bill, further than it needed to secure an internal market, and that that was inevitably aggravating of, of the devolved nations. Feeling. Yeah, that, that's right. But because these these sort of these clauses are quite so sweeping and cover pretty much anything, they actually do, they will touch on areas that go beyond the areas that were governed by the EU single market. So um, in one one area that I saw was just being discussed last night on Twitter is around professional qualifications. It will, it will cover education, which again, previously, the devolved administrations had the freedom to regulate that in the way that they saw fit. Um, also, the other one that the UK government points to um, is building regulations. 
regions, which again, there was a freedom for the devolved administrations to have different standards. Um, but but the UK government is pointing out that actually this this bill would, would cover that. So I think that that's, that's one of the big concerns for the devolved administrations that the government has called it a power surge for the devolved um, and the devolves have called it a power grab. I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. Power surge, brilliant. Uh, Alex, um, does this bill threaten the future of the United Kingdom or just give the Scottish nationalists a chance to say so? It definitely gives the Scottish nationalists a chance to say so. I think the answer to that depends on what you think about the government's overall strategy on uh, keeping the union together. And this government, as as its uh, predecessors, w- wants to keep the union uh, together. Uh, there's a debate about uh, h- how far different actors uh, care about that or not, but that's uh, I-, I-, I won't go there. I th- so, but I think this government, unlike its predecessors, has decided to accommodate less and to assert more and to take a much more bullish approach to asserting the powers of uh, the Westminster Parliament and the UK uh, government. And that is what's reflected in the bill. So does does it threaten the union? Yes, absolutely, insofar as it gives ammunition to uh, Scottish nationalists in in particular. It amps up the uh, controversy uh, around um, uh, many of the matters that, that Maddie was just talking about. In the end, at root, it is giving expression to tensions uh, and uh, issues that were inherent in the process of the UK leaving the EU. Um, as, as Maddie was saying, the, the, um, the devolution settlements are built on our membership of uh, the EU, and particularly in Northern Ireland, but across the whole of the UK. And there was always going to be a crunch around how these powers are exercised. And the UK government you know, was always going to take uh, a different view on that to the devolved government. So those tensions were there anyway. The question is, uh, well, it, it is clear the government is going to, is unashamedly sort of taking the, those those points head on. We'll see what happens. But the, um, you know, we can see a foreshadowing here of the approach that the government will take um, if the SNP do very well in next year's Scottish parliamentary elections, assuming they happen, COVID permitting, um, uh, and uh, and start demanding another independence referendum. We can expect a sort of a, a, a similarly sharp answer, I think, from from uh, the UK government. Mm, all that we, we will be coming on to. And Raf, just briefly wrapping this up, could the courts come into this? Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, I think uh, one of the things this bill does, which is quite interesting, um, is potentially gives the courts, uh, in some ways, a bigger role in national life than they than they had before, because it imports these uh, EU law concepts that Maddie was talking about, uh, about non-discrimination and mutual recognition. Uh, and it effectively says... That if the nations of the UK try to legislate uh, in a way which breaches those principles, then that legislation has no effect. And that, that effectively means that you could see the courts striking down legislation passed by the legislatures of the UK in a way that we're sort of not terribly used to uh, here. And so it, in that sense, I think it, certainly the courts could, in, could get involved. It's also just worth flagging uh, something that has got a lot of lawyers very exercised about this bill beyond all the international law stuff, uh, that some of the powers that ministers have tried to take in this bill, they have tried to make totally non-justiciable. So they have tried to say that the courts cannot uh, strike down what ministers do under these pe- uh, powers, even for incompatibility with domestic law, with any rule of domestic law. Uh, and those kinds of attempts to oust the jurisdiction of the courts completely 
generally make it much more likely that you will see litigation because people will try to get around them. And in the past, the courts have taken a very dim view indeed of attempts by the government to place ministers above the reach of the law in that way. Fascinating. Going back to Alex's point, is also the kind of thing that the House of Lords would have a very sharp eye out for. Indeed. Let's step away from Brexit and constitutional questions right at the moment and look at a subject which is going to dominate the next decade, climate change. The government has set a target for the UK to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050, but our new report says that it's off track and it doesn't seem to be doing much to sort out the problem. Tom Sass, one of the report's main authors, joins us now. Hi, Tom. Hi, Bronwyn. Tom, give us a bit of background, please. What is the net zero target and how off track are we? So net zero very simply means that by 2050, the UK will reduce all of its greenhouse gas emissions to a level that's no more than the amount of emissions it absorbs from the atmosphere through things like trees or carbon capture technologies. So at that point, the UK will no longer be adding to the stock of of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Uh, Even on the most ambitious assumptions about how much carbon we might be able to soak up, What that commitment really means is that the UK will remove almost all emissions from from every sector of the economy. So that means every internal combustion engine vehicle, every gas boiler, and really shifting the economy to one being powered from one being powered by fossil fuels to one that's almost entirely emissions free. Uh, How far off track are we? Well, just over a month after we adopted our target, uh, the CCC, that's the Committee on Climate Change said that we were still off track, actually, even for the previous less ambitious target, which was an 80% reduction in emissions against 1990 levels. The government has brought forward a few announcements since then, um, but the climate climate experts still think it's it's nowhere near enough. Okay, a lot off track. <laughs> what, what are the problems in getting there? So it's important to acknowledge, I think, that climate change is a a profoundly difficult political problem that every country and every government struggles with. I mean, first, it's still just about a sort of long-term threat to our our way of life. It is, of course, becoming less long-term as a threat every day, and we switch on the news today and see horrific wildfires in Oregon. But it remains the case that it's hard to get politicians to focus on Uh, something that is long-term against uh, whatever priorities I have in the current parliament. And second, it's difficult because, of course, uh, no country can tackle this on its own. It requires multilateral action. But the government has this commitment to net zero. So if we take that at face value and and, and sort of think it's serious about delivering that, what are the big problems that are sort of holding it back on, on, on progressing? Uh, We point to six C's uh, that have held back progress to date. So the first is a a coherent plan, which sets out sector by sector how the UK will achieve emissions reductions. The key point about this is that actually delivering net zero is largely down to businesses, investors and consumers who are the ones who are going to really drive these changes. And these sectors are very different. I mean, that sounds quite quite abstract, but you're talking on one hand about transport, then you're talking about people's houses and their gas boilers, and then you're talking about businesses themselves, and you're talking about power generation. I mean, it's, it's, it's the whole economy, isn't it, and people's lives? Absolutely. It's, it's every single 
sector of the economy it's going to affect every business it's going to affect every single person's life but the 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 key point in terms of a a long-term plan is that those businesses and those consumers will only really be able to make those changes if government gives them some certainty about the direction it's heading in and that's the the main complaint that you get from businesses is that government has just been flip-flopping in terms of its direction on this so our second uh, c is consistent policy and regulation Uh, that's something that we've talked about quite a bit at the IFG, this idea of sort of constant policy reinvention that goes on as ministers change roles or as as governments change over. Um, Our third C is about coordination. So I mentioned it covers every part of the economy. uh, And really, that requires some pretty powerful coordination to get every department, every regulator, every local authority, each of the devolved governments all pointing in the same direction. Uh, Our fourth C is about costs. So this is a huge shift in the nature of the economy and will require a lot of investment. Uh, the Committee on Climate Change thinks that's about 1% to 2% of GDP each year. And you need to work out how you're going to allocate those costs fairly while protecting businesses' competitiveness. Uh, our fifth C is capability. So government's going to be able to need to be able to make key decisions, uh, for instance, the role of, of hydrogen or, or sort of the balance of the future energy mix, as well as develop policies and, and implement them effectively. And our final C, and I think this is a really important one, is around public consent. Um, So these changes really go right to the heart of people's lives. They mean changes to the way they heat their homes, get to work, what they eat and drink. Some of them are going to be very controversial. So you really need a process that builds public consent, brings the public into into decision making and brings them on board. All right, very, very um, slick and sleek. Um, we'll just go back to one of your C's, the fourth, I think it was. Uh, how, how much is it, this is going to cost? Yeah, so the, the Committee on Climate Change rough estimate at the moment is 1% to 2% of GDP. Uh, when the Treasury did some estimates last year, they worked it out about $1 trillion, um, all the way to 2050. Um, so per, per year, every year to 2050. Yeah, so it's about... Thirty-three billion pounds a year by the by the Treasury's estimate. So that's one to two. That's around one percent of GDP. Um, the the what the, the sort of climate experts would say on this is that that's uh, a, a large amount to fund in terms of investment, but in return for that, you get significant benefits for the economy. So you get cleaner air from from switching to electric vehicles. You get kind of reduced operational expenditure in other areas. You get health benefits from switching people over to walking and cycling more. Right, and those um, things we, we may not be calculating, you know, right at the moment, even when we're f- focusing on the costs. But exactly. I, 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 so it could, could easily be a sort of a, a, an overall benefit to the economy from that investment. Okay, but a hard argument to make at, the, at this point. How, how much help is a big recession of the kind that we may be just about to have? I think that's one of the really challenging things is that, you know, government's just added a huge amount to its overall debt. Um, Also, a lot of households are are struggling for money in a way that they weren't a year ago. Uh, So you do have to start that conversation about costs. I was seeing an argument play out on Twitter yesterday where one of the the public sector unions was arguing that actually the amount it will cost to replace boilers is going to be too much for a lot of uh, hard-pressed people. And we're going to see a lot of those types of debates. That's one of the reasons why we think the government needs to bring this this question of costs right to the front and be upfront with the public and talk about how to manage those. Clearly, poorer households are going to need some help to to bear that, that cost. Um, Alex, when you were in government, how much of a priority was this? And it, it waxed and waned, I think, for precisely the reasons that you and Tom were just 
talking about um, and it comes back to the costs and the economy so i i think back to 2005 six seven ish uh and i was uh, a civil servant in defra working on international climate change policy it was absolutely the subject of the moment david Miliband was everywhere tony blair was very very focused on it it was a huge priority both the international and kind of getting the the domestic uh, approaching gear then financial uh, crash uh, happened in 2008-9 and it dropped off the agenda before it's it's steadily come back with the the net zero uh, debate and commitments i think uh, uh, and, and the, the work that went on at the time was more sort of there, there were really important things happening in government, in uh, the Department for Energy and Climate Change, and, and uh, as it was at the time and elsewhere, particularly, for example, offshore wind. Offshore wind, a huge uh, success story, actually, that was uh, the, 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 the seeds of which were sown during that time when climate change was off the kind of public agenda and off the government's agenda, but policies were being snuck through. It, it, it causes me to reflect actually on the relative success of the institutional architecture that was set up by the climate change act and the uh, the in the in the tail end of the the labor government before 2010 uh, the committee on climate change is a sort of international exemplar for this stuff and that um has structurally managed to keep the kind of quiet drumbeat of tackling climate change and uh, dealing with uh, carbon emissions in the background that was then and setting carbon budgets and just sort of steadily carrying on that then created some of the conditions um for the uk to be able to to kind of uh, uh, make the commitments around net zero none of that takes away from the massive uh, challenges that that remain um, but definitely i i agree the the, the risk of, an, uh, of a recession yeah, with all that, I mean, Maddie, the government's trying to do a global pandemic uh, and get Brexit done um, and all these contra- controversial things we've just been talking about. Do you think it's got bandwidth for this as well? I mean, I think that is one of the biggest challenges. You know, we know that Brexit took up so much energy in the civil service from 2016 to 2019. We also, you know, although the government won its majority last year, we knew that 2020 was still going to have to be a pretty big Brexit year. And then the global pandemic hit. So, you know, when I've talked to officials, it strikes me, you know, they the fact that they have been sort of focused on the coronavirus response the last few months, now having to reorient it to Brexit. And also the government, quite fair enough, you know, wants to get on with its, administ- its sort of general agenda. So levelling up agenda and other big issues means that civil service has a lot on its plate. And I do think that, as you and Tom have just been discussing, the sort of long-term nature or the slightly longer-term nature of climate change does make it more challenging. Um, I think that it, what will really matter is that it, it, it has to become sort of a, a top priority for ministers, I think, to really get the political drive behind it. But I do I do think that officials have had a huge amount to do this year. Um, and right now, I can't quite see them having the space, the headspace or the energy to to focus a huge amount on, on net zero, unfortunately. Tom, the, the UK's got the COP26 summit next year, back a year. What does it have to do to make that a success? What counts as success? Well, it's a huge conference. Um, so there's there's one of these big cops only once every five years. And the last one was Paris five years ago, where countries sort of agreed to this, this, this level of action that led to the net zero target. Uh, at COP26, what the government really needs to be able to do is show that it's really serious about its target and has an actual plan to deliver it and the capability in place uh, to do that. Uh, I think it's it's going to be the point where talking the talk is no longer going to be enough. It's worth saying it's also going to be a really interesting moment for sort of multilateralism as the world comes back together after the pandemic. It's also going to be 
potentially the sort of first outing for for global Britain after Brexit. So it's going to be a huge conference. Everyone's going to be looking at what we're doing. And, and for the new, and for the new or old uh, US president, we'll have to see, which will have a big big impact on it as well. But just, just quickly, how much is the UK responsible, not just for getting its own act together, but for actually brokering an agreement? How much, how, how much um, pressure, a social pressure does the host bear? The host has a hugely important role. So if you look at that landmark Paris agreement, uh, the French government really had a huge role in the sort of two to three years leading up to that, doing all of the sort of diplomatic legwork, getting countries ready to, to make a deal. You're completely right to point out that where the US is will have a huge role. If if Biden gets elected in November, then it's a very, very different conference and it could, it could look very positive. Uh, if it's a Trump presidency, then we're likely to again see a difficult uh, time of things. Well, we've got all that to look forward to. But that is the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Alex Thomas, Raphael Hogarth, Maddie Timont-Jack and Tom Sass. And big thank you to all of you listening at home. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more of our discussions, then please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. Look out for special episodes on that Net Zero report that we've just been talking about, the latest Brexit developments, and the government's handling of the first phase of the pandemic. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Do leave us a review. And you can find all our work, including this terrific Net Zero report, at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. See you next week in government. It's a very long time and who knows what will happen by then.